Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Digital marketing has moved forwards, but most consulting firms haven't. Many consulting firms still see their corporate blog as their sole digital marketing channel and find themselves frustrated when these blogs yield little, if any, results. For those consultancies that understand digital marketing, though, it can be a huge asset and help them achieve rapid business growth. In fact, at Create Engage, we've recently written a case study of one successful consulting firm that used digital marketing to help them grow over 400% in just three years. Having spent countless hours researching consulting firms and consulting leaders for this podcast, it became very clear that while some firms do digital marketing well, the vast majority of consulting firms struggle to leverage its power and don't know where to start. To help those of you who want to harness the power of digital marketing to grow your consulting business, but don't have the knowledge, capacity, or in-house capability to do so, I launched Create Engage, the first digital marketing agency for the management consulting industry. As former consultants ourselves, we understand the challenges that you face when it comes to delivering effective digital marketing that engages prospective clients and generates leads. Having worked in the industry, we understand consulting buyers, what resonates with them and what doesn't. This enables us to harness the latest in digital marketing in a way that aligns with your brand and your market positioning to attract the prospective clients that you're looking to target. We understand that each consultancy is unique and have a range of services to help you shape, implement and sustain effective digital marketing strategies that deliver results, regardless of where you are on your digital marketing journey. If you would like to find out more about how Create Engage can help you use digital marketing to take your business to the next level, then send me an email at nick at createengage.co.uk or go to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can download that free case study that breaks down the digital marketing strategies used by one successful consulting firm to help them grow over 400% in just three years and gives you the secrets they used so that you can apply them in your own firm. If you want to outpace your competitors and stand out in the crowded consulting market, then get in touch. We'd love to help you grow your business through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to Climbing Consulting. In today's episode, I speak to Tom Hewson, Senior Partner at Red Compass Labs, the specialist consultancy that's helping financial institutions accelerate their payments and financial crime programs. Tom's journey to where he is today has been rather unorthodox and is a great lesson in following your passion and being attuned to the opportunities that can come from it. Over his career, he has gone from running his own record label to IT contracting through to launching Red Compass Labs, which he and the team have built into a consultancy of over 100 financial services specialists with offices across the globe. With such a varied career, there was so much for us to dig into in this one. And Tom and I talk about a whole range of really important topics for any consultant, many of which I've not discussed with any other guest before. We cover everything from his early days in music all the way through to his approach to leading Red Compass Labs and everything in between. Some of the highlights that you're about to listen to include why following the money is never the right decision and how to cultivate happiness through finding your passion, whether that's within consulting or outside of it. Tom's advice on building a highly diverse team, having created a team at Red Compass Labs with over 20 nationalities represented. 
what he looks for in an interview, and why cultivating the immigrant mindset could be the key to your career success. And what you should be thinking about if you're looking to give back to your industry, the benefits that Red Compass have seen of over-investing in CSR, and the returns from their own initiative, the Red Compass Lab Red Flag Accelerator, which is the most comprehensive global database of modern slavery and human trafficking red flags specifically for the financial sector. I really enjoyed this conversation with Tom. We cover a lot of different and at times deep topics that I know you're really going to enjoy. Having been pointed to Tom by my friend James Mitra at JBM, I was expecting a good interview and Tom certainly exceeded those expectations. Whether you are trying to find your passion and break into the consulting industry, or you're looking to learn how you can build a highly diverse team in your current firm, I know that you are going to get a ton from this episode. So with that intro said, sit back, relax, enjoy my conversation with Tom Hewson. Tom, welcome to the show. Hi, Nick. Great to be here. Uh, really pleased we could we could get this in. I know, you know you've been busy, I've been busy, we've had to move it a few times, but I'm really pleased we're catching up today and, and really excited because, you know, from our conversations before, there's there's a lot to dig into in your story and, and quite a few things that I know I've not, not talked about with any other guests, so I'm very excited, Tom. To kick us off, though, before we do dive in, it'd be great just if you could share a bit on your background and, and how you got to where you are today for those who may not know you so well. <laughs> um, there's probably everyone listening. Well, I'm a senior partner in a consultancy that works right in the heart of the city of London. And we, we also have offices in uh, Warsaw and uh, Singapore and, and Tokyo. And I got here by absolutely not planning to get here. Uh, I got here by just, you know, just following the next door into the next door into the next door. And they appeared here. It, it started in the music industry and it ended in pinstripe suits in the city. I love that intro. And I think uh, we'll be coming back to that next door and next door. And, and maybe we start there because as somebody who maybe followed what I, you know, personally, I followed quite a structured career path, should we say, you know, did the graduate schemes and, and sort of into corporate career from there. To your point, you know, you started from a very different place. You spent a lot of your 20s in in the music business. And I'd love to start with why was that the first door you chose to open after university? Why did you go into music and not straight into a, a corporate career or, or something else? Yeah, I think, I mean, I'll just speak really, really honestly, and I don't even know if this is going to be true of, of anyone who's listening at all, but I, I felt compelled. I didn't, I didn't feel that the kind of normal path was just something that at, at that time I could do. I, fe I felt, I looked around me and I saw lots of other grads who were talking about how much money they were going to make in their first job. And I just didn't feel I was part of their tribe. And the music was the thing which lifted me and made me. And it's who I was and it's what I had to do. I felt like a compulsion versus a choice. Was there ever any tensions in that? Because obviously, you, you know your mind and sort of thinking back to it, it, it was very clear. But was there ever a tension then? And particularly thinking for anyone listening who's actually at that stage, you know, was it ever hard to say, well, I'm going to go down the music route, which if you look at it one way, doesn't pay as well, doesn't ultimately lead to a career that pays as well long term? Was that a factor? Or for you, was it that passion for music and, and the fact that that was your tribe that led you to go down that route? 
Well, I, I think the, the detention was <laughs> I wasn't very good. And I, and I probably knew that I wasn't very good. And I think that that's why I describe it as, as a compulsion, that, that I kind of had to do this. And, and I knew that if I didn't do this, that somehow that m- my life wouldn't be the life that I wanted to live. And I, I didn't know where it was coming. And, and I mean, clearly, you know, the, there's part of me that's ambitious. Otherwise, I wouldn't have ended up where I've, I've ended up. That, that I do want to do what... I do really, really, really well. And so I was scared, but I also felt I had to, and and it wasn't a choice. It was that or just live somebody else's life. And that just felt even more appalling than trying to live my life, even if I was pretty mediocre. Tom, I, I love it. And I think we're in, we're in for great fun over the next hour or so. And it, how did you go on that that journey? And this is a big question, but I think to your point, you know, you obviously had a lot of self-awareness to to know where you were in sort of, you know, in the pecking order, as it were, in terms of your, you know, your peers. But you actually, obviously, you went on to sort of, well, I'll let you tell the story, but you went on to run a record label, you know, obviously, you've, you've gone on to sort of build the business you have now. Was that drive something that you always had in you? And if not, when did that drive, do you remember the sort of turning point where that drive really sort of turned on and, and really started, you started pushing yourself forwards like that? No, I think I've always had the drive. I think I've always been someone, you know, even, you know, as a little kid, it was quite competitive and quite over serious and full of angst and wanted to win whether it was sports. So I think I always had that wiring inside of me. In terms of what really turned it on, though, and, and, and focused it, I, I guess is, is the question. It's, it's that kind of need to survive and, and to prosper. But I got married when I was 21 and I met my wife when I was 20. We kind of met on Monday. And we kind of knew by Thursday. And by the weekend, I told my brother, I'm going to marry her. And then we were married within a year. And then suddenly, oh, my goodness, how am I going to make this work? You know, how, how, how am I going to you know, pay for the apartment? How am I going to buy a car? And, and, um, and I'm wanting to work in music. And, you know, you're not good enough, Tom, uh, as a musician. So what are you going to do? You've got to apply this. And, and I think in that focus into becoming part of the other side of the industry, the, the record label side, and we weren't good enough to sign ourselves. And so we had to figure out the closest we could be would be to sign other bands. And so I think it was, I was young and married and had a, a rent bill to pay that focused it. <laughs> I might come back to the, you know, how you met your your wife, and I'm sure that that sounds like the Craig David song, if you if you know <laughs> the one I'm talking about. But I, well, I, I do, and let me say, my my Craig David story is someone spent New Year's Eve saying what you've just said and going through my Spotify to find it until Spotify decided that I was a huge Craig David fan. And when it posted my highlights of the year and my, you know, your daily mix, I took about a year to get rid of Craig David. So, so yeah, I, I do know which song you mean, but yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. That's probably a joke others have made before by the sounds of it. But uh, why sort of almost that, you know, frankly, entrepreneurship from an early age? And I, you know, correct me if that's not what the story was, but the way you explain it makes it sound like the obvious choice was to start a record label. But I'm sure a lot of people listening would say the obvious choice is to find the safest, best paying job and not to offend anyone, but go and be an accountant. Why did you go down what is actually typically quite a an unsecure, quite a sort of up and down route? You know, the music business can be really high and then suddenly, you know, bands don't make it and, and sort of it goes really low. Why was it that entrepreneurial route that you chose to follow at such a young age? I think three things, you know, two things up in my mind. One is, I remember back, you know, it was 30 years ago now, that quote from Thoreau that, you know, most men live lives of quiet desperation. 
and I was it was already at, I think at that age afraid that, that that's what being a grown up meant. And being twenty one and married, I felt like a grown up. I felt like I was out of sync with my peers, and and I was worried that that's what lay ahead of me if I, if I didn't follow things which which you know moved me or or, or gave me life. I think the the second thing was that you know this sounds funny, but I, I've always felt somewhat unemployable. I've always felt a little bit that at the risk of sounding utterly pretentious, but I remember all of these things from being 21, having these kind of conversations. I was talking with a Catholic priest like one does, right? And he was like, oh, you know, why music? Same things you're kind of asking. Well, it's because someone's got to succeed, you know? And then we talked and we talked. He's like, Nietzsche said something, which of course made me feel very intellectual having a discussion about Nietzsche. It talked about people who had fear offenses. And he was talking about the, the things within man or woman or people, but you know, Nietzsche talked about man, who have fear of boundaries. And, and I probably felt that at 21, that to be constrained by someone else's corporate structure or path would probably crush me. And then I think the third thing was that, you know, whilst it's a lot, lot more common now. It was less common then. You know, the, the, this this idea. I think I very much had a strong kind of ADHD type brain that, that that found it difficult to just sit down and play the long game and grind it out. So that you know, the, there's too many things sparking in my head to stay focused on a graduate scheme for three years. My knowledge of the Craig David repertoire isn't strong enough to know the Catholic priest song that we could reference, <laughs> but I, um, yeah. <laughs> I I love the story and. I want to come on to shortly sort of actually the the journey past music, but kind of fast forwarding to look backwards. Again, we talk a lot in in consulting about transferable skills and how, you know, actually industry experience is good. Would love to know, particularly for any of our listeners who may be in that position, you know, we we do get listeners to the show who who are sort of 20, 21 thinking about their career. Actually, what was it that looking back at your time in music the skills you learned that have really helped you, you know, as you moved into consulting and built Red Compass, sort of what are some of those things that you think, actually, I couldn't have done that without my time in the music industry? Yeah, I think, I think that's a good question. I think that that's really true. I think that, the, you know, it, it's a myth to think that there's this magic secret sauce that you, you learn in consulting and can apply it. I think it is, it is exactly what you said. It's, it's life being transferred and applied. And I mean, you know, because specifically the music industry, you know, there is no question you are dealing with really difficult stakeholders. You know, you are absolutely trying to manage the unmanageable, right? And if you can get an artist to deliver on time into a bigger plan and then to do the things they say they're going to do, you can get almost anybody. You can get an incalcitrant CTO to actually give you the server space or the compliance to allow you to do the rules. So I think difficult stakeholders, when to use a stick, when to use a carrot, when someone needs an arm around them, when someone needs a kick. Probably, that's number one. And then, I guess number two, just just being, you know, I mean, to, to release a record, think about it, right? You know, you are sequencing a lot of events that come together from an artist recording to artwork to scheduling to press, you know, release to, you know, to marketing to distribution, you know, you've got to have it manufactured in those days, you know, of course, before you can stream it. The supply chain, the, there's, there's critical paths, there's deliverables, and there's money that's burning if it doesn't have come together. I think, you know, Project management is project management, right? You see, when you say it like that, it sounds really obvious. I'm going to ask just because you, you know, I know this is a consulting podcast, but you know, I'd love to know what the story, you know, the most memorable artist story. Because you're you're quite right. I, you know, I I've never worked in the music business, but 
frankly, watching TV shows about it, you see some of the personality types. And uh, I think they are more difficult stakeholders than any CTO you'd ever work with. I'd, I'd love to know if there was a story that sticks out. It's a complete tangent, but... You don't have to name who it was, if uh, and we can move on. If actually you can't, you can't talk about that period. No, 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 with that, without kind of post-traumatic stress. So I guess to, to kind of apply it to what I've just said. Well, I'll, I'll give you two or three little tiny little stories. Right, the artist that we booked the tour. Booking the tour is really hard. Getting all the dates lined up one after the other, and tour managers and hotels, and you know people can do the sound. And all they've got to do is get to the airport and get on the plane. Right, and the artist arriving at the airport without their passport. And then you're thinking, oh, you forgot your passport. Oh, do I need to bring my passport? I mean, you know, it wasn't they forgot it. We could all forget it, right? That could happen on a business trip. But have you ever met any consultants who said, do I need a passport to fly to Europe from America? Now, maybe that's just an American, okay. But it turns out it wasn't. Because when he got here, so at least you know half the population, you can dismiss who this was. Not a woman, it was a man. Oh, actually, I didn't tell you. I'm actually Australian. So even though I'm living in America and sound American and everyone thinks I'm American, I'm actually Australian. So I can't go to Europe without a visa. So so I think it is that type of, oh, my goodness, you literally had to. And this is something that's true today. Assume nothing, trust no one. Assume nothing and trust no one is the only way you can ever make it in that industry. It sounds very much like the plot of Get Him to the Greek, if you remember that film. Yeah. I don't know how... <laughs> <laughs> I believe that's fictitious, but um, yeah, it's. I love your, you know, what you say about that. Assume nothing and trust no one, and it kind of, yeah, you take some things for granted, don't you? And that that probably being one of them. And I, I guess jumping sort of forward a, a little bit, and and actually towards, I guess, the end of your time in music, because you know, it sounds like you had a great time doing it. You did really well. You know, we'll come on to sort of more about what you're doing, you know, now and and the consulting side, and obviously it taught you a lot of skills for that, but. How did you decide the time was was right to leave and, and almost why, if my research is correct, you sort of then went on to do your MBA. Why, why did you decide actually, you know what, I'm going to go from the music industry, which is everything you've just described, to doing an MBA, which again, to caricature and, and probably oversimplify, is going all the way to those pinstripe suits and, and corporate types. Sort of what was it that made you say, right, actually, I'm going to make that leap and make, you know, make that change? I think it was a couple of things. So one, in terms of a, a, from a life point of view, I was, of course, 28, which is extraordinarily old when you're 28. Of course, when you're 51, 28, you think, oh, my goodness, to be 28. So I felt I, felt I was getting quite old. I had to you know, think about, okay, you know, and the, the music industry, there's no middle class in the music industry. You know, you're rich or poor. And, and you can be rich one year and poor the next year. There's no middle class. So I think that that was really coming home. We had our, our first child which was exciting, but terrifying. Because again, I felt like I was ahead of my peers. I didn't even have kids. And uh, they were just getting married by then, right? And there was having kids. So I think this was all happening. But then I think structurally in the music industry, there's a lot of change. This was right before Napster. So it was, it was on the cusp of the industry changing from something that people spent their money on each week to something they would expect to get for free. I think the second thing was happening that the gaming was really big. You know, the PlayStation was launched. And suddenly people had other things to spend their money on so the music industry suddenly couldn't just rely on nick you know getting his paycheck and going down to the record store and listening to some records and spending some money every saturday whether it's one record or two actually it had changed and and i think this kind of it's almost like a a disruptive technology which i think we're seeing now in the world and it was also a change in society about you know what they did with their free time and everything was upside down and i think i think the biggest kicker was this 
that we, we, we have this band who, you know, probably you've never heard of, but in their moment, Neutral Milk Hotel. And they were, you know, Google them, Neutral Milk Hotel. And they're still awesome. And, you know, they're on tour. They're on a tour bus. They're going around Europe. You were on the radio. We're selling uh, CDs as fast as we can manufacture them. And yet, actually, we have this kind of crisis in the company. And there's something we have to lace people off. Now, you and I can look at that quite easily and say, oh, okay, that, 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 that's a cash flow issue, right? That's cash flow. That's a liquidity. That's Lehman Brothers. They, did, they, they, they had a good business with no liquidity, right? Well, same with us. We had a great business with no liquidity. So it, Blue Rose Record Company didn't make the news as much as Lehman did during the you know, very similar crisis. But that's what it was. I didn't know what that was. I was 28, self-taught. I didn't know. Well, how did that happen? We've never been more successful. We've never sold more records, put our bands in front of more people. You know, we, we climbed up this greasy pole and we're kind of almost out of business. How did this happen? I think the MBA for me was that. It was to go and think, no, show me the mechanics of what just blew up in my life. I don't understand that. So th that's really what motivated me. It wasn't to become grown up and corporate. It was to understand I don't understand how success killed us. It's probably the the best journey to an MBA I've I've ever heard, and I, you know, I'm I'm listening to you thinking I should have. You know, I love what I'm doing now, but I now regret my corporate <laughs> my corporate twenties. I should have been doing no. something as as exciting, and I did just Google Neutral Milk Hotel. Um, I'm afraid I hadn't heard of them, but don't worry. Now having a team and people a lot younger than me. I mention bands all the time where I feel suddenly very old. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's um, the the thing that still gets me is when I see, particularly when we have candidates interviewing, where you get their personal email addresses and they end in numbers like ninety nine and ninety eight and ninety five, and I still in my mind sort of think, well, that's a fun like. Why are there ninety five of you before? And then then you realise actually that's their their birthday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe the the sort of last piece on this before we do jump into sort of some more of the you know the sort of red compass pieces. Just what you've said makes perfect sense. You know, you, you had this real crisis. You, you went to do an MBA to, to learn how to fix that crisis. What led you to then actually start to make that move into, I guess, a more sort of corporate career in inverted commas and ultimately, you know, launch, launch Red Compass? What, what made you do that and not think, right, well, I'm going to go back and give the music business another go, either resuscitate Blue Rose or go and do something else for a similar business? Of course, it took another 20 years, I think, for the, for the music dream to fully die or evaporate or, or or reality to set in maybe i was just really really thick and you were really clever 21 not to do it because it was terrifying so it, there was no moment to say i'm not going to do this anymore i think so that there probably was still that idea that somehow that, that that i couldn't imagine there wasn't something in my life but but this is now kind of 2000 it's kind of dot-com era so my son just said to me what's a dot-com like oh my goodness so it was you know so in that sense there was this kind of you know internet media music convergence and so i kind of i did when i finished my mba actually go work in a dot-com in seattle that was kind of my transition from working for myself into having a job and it and of course that felt not too dissimilar to the music industry right you went to work in jeans and you went to work at 10 o'clock in the morning and then you went home at 2am you know if it, it, so i think there was this dot com eased me into this idea that you could work for somebody else and i managed that for a year or two until i thought i can't do this i need if, if, if it's if it's working for them why couldn't i do it let me go do something that i can do you know why why make them rich if i can go and build something of my own again i'm going to jump not because i don't want to find out about that origin story of, of red compass we'll, we'll definitely come on to it but you you touched on you know that point around following your dream and obviously the 
the music piece before. And, and, you know, to your point around making yourself rich, obviously that's one motivation or some one factor and, and one motivator. But something that I know we talked about when we were sort of speaking in advance for this this podcast is, you know, you, you now have that very much view that money is obviously a great thing and, you know, it, it helps. But ultimately, if you're going to sort of work as hard as, as consultants do, and obviously, you know, you have in building, building the business with your team, it's got to be about more than, than just that. And I think, you know, the thing that I find fascinating, I'd love to get your perspective on is, you know, music is very easy to understand how someone thought that was sexy. Bands, gigging, all of that sort of stuff. For those who don't know, obviously, Red Compass specializes in payments. And I say this not to offend you or your team, but you know, <laughs> particularly as someone who markets for consulting firms, I get it when people don't think what we do is sexy. But payments, yeah, is not the sexiest area in in the world. You know, we've just just been watching an F one documentary with my wife, and I must say, if I had my time again, I'd go be something to do with F one. It's a young man's game; it pays very well, but it, you know, it's something in your twenties. But actually, how did you, you know, particularly when you were sort of setting up Red Compass and throughout the journey you've been on, you know. How did you get passionate about payments? What was it about payments and you know the business that you you were like, yeah, this is the thing I want to do? And what's kept you passionate about it through that time? So, okay, so four or five different things that you mentioned there. So let me I'll go through the quickly those and then I'll answer it. I think first of all, if there's a hundred consultants in Red Compass today, there's maybe been 150 in our story, right? So you know, I've worked very, very, very closely with, with a lot of consultants, never mind the ones that we just come across, that we work alongside of. And I can say without a doubt, the most unhappy are the ones who are in it for the money. The people that complain most and are the most dissatisfied are the ones who are most motivated by money. I, I think I, I direct correlation. I've got, you know, and, and, and anyone who's really motivated by money is denying this and they've just turned off your podcast and they're saying it's untrue. And maybe it is, but in, in my experience, it doesn't bring any, it's too hard. You know, it's the, the hours, you know, the, the, the fact that you, you're often hired to be a bulletproof vest for someone, you know, higher up the, the, the ladder in, in corporate life to do this just for money doesn't work, I don't think. And I don't see very many happy people motivated that way. So I think that to kind of, you know, fast forward a bit about, you know, how you can be passionate about payments. Well, the glib answer, which I have to give is actually, I guarantee you, Nick, you are passionate about payments. And let me prove this to you in two quick steps, that if your mortgage payment is due on Friday and your salary is due on Wednesday, if you do not get paid on Wednesday, when you speak to the bank, you speak with passion. You speak with passion to the person who hasn't processed your payments, right? When you go and you pull out your card at the end of dinner to show off that you're the man to pay for everyone else's dinner and that card is declined, you are passionate about payments. Not only that, you talk constantly about payments for the next two or three days, recounting your experience of that payment. So I think the glib answer is payments matter, right? And of course they do. But in the same way, water matters, electricity matters. But, but when, when it's working, it's a utility, right? So I get that. But that isn't, of course, why, you know, it's, it's, it's not just to get the mortgage paid and your salary paid that makes, I think, people care and be passionate about payments is I think that type of person, the people in this world which I inhabit, is that it, it's a much wider thing. It's about, it's the wheels of industry, it's the economy, it's the all the way through to, to the unbanked and the underbanked. So it feels like it's life itself. It's the poor woman farmer in Bangladesh who needs to figure out how to get the best price for her crop and how that is she receives that to then buy food to live 
all the way through to I walked in Amazon just opened a store, right? And they open it in Ealing. That's the first, you know, kind of you walk in, you pick up the stuff, you put it in your bag and walk out. How did that happen? Right. So whether you like innovation and technology in the future of society or whether you care about people that have no access to financial services and you figure out how can I get them their money? That's all the story of payments. Tom, that was one of the best pitches I've heard from anyone for anything in a long time. And I, I, I love what you say there. And I, I do think it's true for a lot of things. You know, you could, if you look into something, you can get interested in it and, and passionate about it. And I should have asked this first, because you're right, I sort of jumped quite a golf and, and maybe just to backtrack a little, that's a great pitch. And you've been doing this now for sort of going on 20 years. Where did the payments thing come from at the start? Was it what you've just described, you know, a, a bad call with your mortgage company that led you to start the company? How did your sort of passion for payments come about? I think it's, it's, it's like we said in the beginning, you walk through a door that puts you through another door, and then you walk through a door. And so there was no plan. And so I finished the MBA. I'd, I'd kind of done the dot-com. I'd kind of thought, okay, come on, Tom, you could go start your own thing, right? And so now I'm just Tom out on the street. And soon you realize absolutely no one is interested in Tom because he's got an MBA and been in the music industry. And by luck, there's a guy over there. I said something nice to him. He said something nice about me. Before you know it, someone has said, hey, do you want to come and have an interview? We need a, a project manager to run Target 2 project for a Japanese bank. What Target 2 is, for people who don't know, Target was, and Target 2 is the new one, how it's, it's the euro infrastructure for moving large payments, real-time gross settlement, we call it, RTGS. So when you pay you know, one company to another company, millions of pounds, when you pay your tax bill, when you buy a company, it's like what CHAPS is in the UK, Target 2 is for Europe. So to go in and run this bank's project as a project manager, I knew nothing about payments. I knew nothing. I got the job. They were clearly desperate. The city was booming and Japanese banking was not popular place to go work. All they could get was me. And literally I'm going in on the tube with my hands in my head thinking I am out of my depth. I am so out of my depth. God help me. Literally, please help me. And uh, suddenly I was in the payments world. Uh, yeah. I think, you know, the door that leads to another door that leads to another door. I, I love and that. This may just be my prejudice is probably too strong a word, but assumption is sometimes people caricature it as, there are creatives and then there are corporate types. And I, you know, to your point around how did I find myself at a Japanese bank doing Target 2 payment project management, was there ever, you know, at that point, did you ask yourself any questions about actually do I want to be going into banking? Or was it, you know, like you said, by that point, you were just ready for something different and this was that different? No, it was, it was horrendous. And, and the, the thing is, when you get to the end of this, I'm sure you're going to ask me, what have you got to tell someone who's whatever, 20 years younger? And I'm going to answer a little bit of that right now, which is, you know what, however frustrated or unhappy you are, I have felt that and I feel that. And the, the worst thing about that is because somehow I stayed with it, everything I have now is because I stayed with it, even though every bone in my body was saying run away. And I'd come back from holiday, we would be in the queue at Calais to get back on the, you know, the Channel Town or something. And I would just be cross that, you know, I was going back to this, this is killing me. And and, you know, but I was maybe 31, 32 then, and I did kind of know, Tom, this is a moment that you've got to grind this out and that it's not all fun. And uh, I have no idea how, but we suddenly had four kids, you know, my wife just kept reproducing and, you know, <laughs> she's in the Highlands, very fertile Highlander. And um, 
I had to, it, you know, th- th- there are moments in your life, right? There are moments in your life when you, you know, you don't get a choose. You, you got to do what you got to do. So it, it was, it was horrendous. I absolutely hated it. But I, I think implicit in what you're saying, and, and, you know, I appreciate your circumstances and having four children at home to feed, which is a feat unto itself. I mean, my, it's, a, it's a question I'm not going to ask you to answer right now. But my question with families of that size, how do you get them all in a car, let alone anything else? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but actually your your point there and, and implicit in but keen to get your take is actually I, I get the feeling you know you were grinding it out with the view to do something afterwards and you know there there is a difference between putting up with and grinding out for your life and and to your point knowing that this is a point in time you'll do it for two or three years and, and go on and it feels like you were more the latter but I'd be interested to get your perspective on that yeah that is true and that there was always that kind of bigger picture that i'm not an employee i'm not an employee i'm 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 i am contracting but i always kept my identity as red compass e- even though it was one and then two and then there was another person like me at, at another place even though we barely saw each other there were two contractors essentially for a few years but i guess my identity was always in red compass it was always in that and I, it was never in i'm a project manager at a japanese bank it, it was in how can I leverage this? You know, where is the next door? I can't find the door, but where is the next door? I think that's the difference. I think it's it's a really powerful point. And you know, this isn't about, about me, but I have a very similar journey. We'll talk more later, I'm sure. But, you know, similar sort of contractor wasn't quite for me and, and you know, ultimately led to where I am now. But you're, that point you're making around always be looking for the next door and actually think of yourself as you want, not as your situation finds you, I think it's a really powerful point and actually something that I suspect a lot of people sort of do struggle with. I mean, how did you how did you keep that going? Again, more for advice for others. You know, you, you were there, you were a project manager at a Japanese bank. How, how did you keep yourself thinking that sort of big picture? You know, I am Tom, the partner at Red Compass, not I am Tom, the project manager of a Japanese bank on a program no one wants to run. Yeah, I think what I learned is that strange as this may sound, strange as this may sound, when you, when I, when we fully embrace how perhaps terrified we are inside, how, you know, how actually little control we have over our life, actually, how actually, you know, you know, the, the, we do just kind of roll where the wind blows. When we start to see that and this sounds kind of opposite of maybe what you expect me to say well when you start to view that you know i am not tom master of my own destiny no i am tom one of billions of people on this earth who's all working hard trying to do their best i'm not i'm not special in any way you know i'm i'm utterly ordinary in every way and that actually i still matter right i matter to my wife or i matter to my kids or i matter to my friends or i matter to my parents it's going to be okay, Tom. If this is all it is, you will be okay. And almost letting go of some of the, if I don't do this, I'm nobody. Almost like, if this is all it is, it's, it's pretty good, Tom. It's pretty good. It's strange. It's strange. You're, you're released from the burden of success. And success tends to start to come easier because it's okay when you don't get it. You're not a failure. You just keep going, keep going. Versus, I have failed. I haven't failed. Does that make any sense, Nick? I mean, it, it makes a ton of sense, Tom. And actually, I, there's a lot of parallels with my own story. And I think, and I'm interested for you having lived this and now seen it, you know, as sort of given what you do now, I've actually, do you think that the failure of, you know, your record business helped unlock that? And it's a sort of semi two-parter of, do you find, if you think about, you know, though you mentioned around the people who 
focus on money being unhappiest. Do you actually think that sometimes our industry causes challenges with that because we focus so much on success and achievement that there's that the fear of failure compounds as people grow in our industry? As I say, probably take one or one or other in whichever mm. order you want. Mm, that's an interesting thought. Fear of failure compounds. Fear of failure compounds. I think it does. I think when I think about those people, they, yeah. I mean, I'm, obviously I've got people in my head right now and, that, you know, they're afraid and, and also they're short term because they need to fix. They need to fix the success. They need their next hit, right? Whereas, I mean, as soon as I felt that somehow my success wasn't tied to my salary because if it was i was utterly screwed because in the first years of my compass it was utterly humiliating you know is that you can take a longer term game right you can suddenly make twelve thousand in your first year twenty two thousand in your second year eleven thousand in your third year right because the first i've got to be driving this car so i'm now tied to this salary right because i wasn't tied to that I could grow Red Compass. I could actually put time into it. I could allow it to mature. Things don't happen overnight. I could gain the knowledge. I could defer my income to hire that person so they would get paid, but Red Compass would grow. So I think once I wasn't tied to it, but yeah, I'm really struck by the fear of whatever compounds. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, and to that point, and for the maybe the people you've got in your head or, or anyone listening to this, you freed yourself from that that sort of, that fear of failure and, and you know, that at attachment to your income as sort of a status symbol. I mean, for anyone listening, particularly those, well, for anyone, either someone who wants to change job or someone who wants to start their own firm, what advice do you give to people to help them make that decision? How do you help them free themselves from that link so they can follow their passion, whatever that might be? First of all, I'd definitely say the, the most successful people are the, have failed the most, right? So if, if you're not failing on a regular basis, you're never going to actually achieve something that's memorable. So don't be afraid of failure. Second thing is live simply, live simply. Options matter. When you have a choice to do this or that, then you can start making good decisions. When you've got to do that because you've already signed up for you know that, that credit card or that loan, live simply and you will have the chance to. And to be honest, even if, Nick, your goal was, Tom, how can I accumulate the most before I die? I would say live as simple as you can in your 20s and 30s. And you will get the options. Then later, we'll give you the most when you would die. Even if you want to make the most money, I would say live simply when you're young. I think it's great advice. And again, you know, if I... It's funny, I think back to my younger days and, and you know, I've, I've been through this cycle and was probably earning a lot more, you know, when I was, was 25 than maybe I, I'm taking home now. But, you know, like you say, you burn it, goes all out the door and then you start to worry about that. How can I match my income? And I, I see this particularly acutely in our industry for those at the sort of upper salaries. You know, when I was contracting, for instance, I'm sure you have, there's there's a lot of contractors who who burn everything they earn and actually you get yourself into a, you know, it's it's almost the sort of golden handcuffs or whatever the, the, the phrase is, because you can't take a, like you say, you can't take a sort of metaphorical U-turn back to go forwards because you need that to pay the bills, the mortgage, the fee, the school fees. And I think it's great advice. I mean, you say 20s and 30s, when does it change and why? Okay, so I think for me, it started to change in my early 40s. And I think it, it started to change for a couple of reasons. One, I legitimately had, you know, enough years experience that I could say with confidence to a client, I can help you with this. You know, and I wasn't faking it and I wasn't, and I really wanted to help them. You know, I genuinely wanted to help them and I, and I could help them. It was that miserable time in Target to, you know, kind of earning my stripes and learning a lot 
meant that later I could do the type of work I wanted to do and say, I think I can help you. So I think, I think that's being able to say that with confidence, but you know, I want to go back to something you said, hold on. So you've just admitted maybe to all your listeners that maybe you make less than you made when you were 25, right? Now, that's a very brave thing to say, right? I mean, I mean, seriously, that's a really rare thing for someone to say. I mean, why did you just say that? So I feel we should do a part two where you interview me. Um, in part, because I, I think, you know, it's potted history and those listening who, who've heard me speak on other episodes may know some of this. You know, I've, I've had similar, I started a, when I was 26, I started an estate agency business that was a terribly bad idea, but I learned a lot, you know, and, and actually that failed and, and nothing bad happened. I think to your point, you know, when you realize you know, your your wife or your partner loves you, your family love you, your, your friends, you know, still love you. Actually, it doesn't matter. And then, you know, I, I think something we're very bad at in this this country is, you know, we, we don't like talking about money as, a, as, as Brits. I don't think many sort of nationalities do. But again, there's that fear of it. And so, yeah, I just, I don't know, I don't think of it in that way anymore. But to, to your point, I think it's because I had been through that journey myself. When I was 25, it was much more, you know, I still, and, and it's terrible to admit this, but, you know, I still remember sort of being horrified when I made, I think it was sort of made from analyst to consultant and, you know, got a, I was, I was earning phenomenal money. We all listening to the show know what consultants earn and was horrified that I was coming in at the bottom of the salary band. The bottom of this consulting grade salary band is still puts you in the top earners in the country. And I think that was just, because it was all to your point, you know, when I was a lot younger, focused very much on what's the next promotion, what's that next pay rise, and and you you become very short term and you become fixated on salary for salary's sake. So yeah, that's a long way of saying I kind of had the same epiphany that you've talked about, and you know, ultimately, as long as we've we've got the things that make us happy and you know we're, we're comfortable, does it really matter? No, you know, are, are there people I was working with in consulting who probably earn a lot more than me now, relative, you know at the same level probably so but i'm very happy doing what i'm doing so i think that's the that's the reason yeah and i think that and that's what gets you through the hard days right because i'm sure you have days when you're bored and then you're grinding out the monday and you got days when you're thinking this is too hard and because fundamentally your your motivation's intrinsic right which is i'm doing something i've set out to do versus extrinsic i must meet this monthly hit for cash and that i think is the difference the motivation being intrinsic versus extrinsic and i think you're you're spot on and i i i mean that's probably a nice place to follow on to that point and you know for anyone listening to this who is either wishing that they could think in the way that you you do or or is sort of well no let's start with those people because if they're dismissing it they're probably not ready for that yet but what other advice would you be giving to someone if they they're saying tom i really i admire the way you approach this i'd love to have that same mindset obviously focusing on intrinsic motivators not extrinsic is is one is there anything else that you would recommend to people to help them i guess you could characterize it as find that intrinsic purpose in their work or even broader their their life what are some of those things for someone who maybe says, Tom, I don't want to go and start my own business, run it for seven years, have it fail to learn. What's your advice to help them accelerate that process? You know, is it books? Is it activities? Is it practices? What What do you recommend to people? I think I'd probably, I'd probably say this one, first of all, payments is a great example, that as a human being, that when you get good at something, you're going to get pleasure in it. It doesn't necessarily follow the other way around, that it doesn't have to be this this kind of, what was I built to do? Is there one thing that I must be doing until I find it, I'll never be happy? That's just not true. I think that the evidence tells us, get good at something and you'll enjoy doing it, right? 
I think therefore open your mind to what that might be. And it's probably, probably kind of right the thing right in front of you. It, it, it's not, you know, like F1, I totally get that, right? I totally get that. So I, I love cycling. Well, why can't we do data analytics around cycling and performance? That's what I want to do. Or, you know, or America's Cup sailing. That looks interesting, but it's never going to happen. You know, what's the thing? The, the main thing's the plain thing. It's the thing right in front of you. So I think that that'd be one thing. Don't look too far. Probably you're already quite good at it, but you underestimate it. Because you're good at it, you think it's easy. It's probably not to everyone else. Because it comes to you quite naturally, you dismiss it and downplay it. Look for the ordinary in front of you. I think the second thing I would say is, is that you do have to get yourself and those around you comfortable with failure. One thing I love, I don't necessarily love him as a person, but I love Elon Musk's attitude towards his current kind of starship, trying to build these starships to go to Mars that keep blowing up, right? You know, he is utterly comfortable with them blowing up. And, you know, with all the data they gather every time they blow up. That is what he sees. He, he, he's so into what we've learned from this is incredible, right? He's, he's not putting on a front to anyone, right? And I think that you've got to get comfortable with failure and get those around you comfortable with failure. You know, and, and if that's your parents or if that's your, your, your family, to say that whatever happens, we're going to learn so much from this that we will turn this into success. And whether this business does or not, or whether what the door this opens does, you know, we'll learn and that is what's going to actually move us forward. So I think that if you can't get comfortable with that, you, you, you can't go forward. So it's the thing that's probably you're already quite good at. And if you're not sure what it is, ask your friends, right? And it's be comfortable that you will probably initially fail at it, right? That is the next step of what we've all gone through. And then the third thing is, you know what? Yeah, I love reading business books. I love reading The Economist every Friday night in the bath. I love just, you know, pulling in as much information, you know, reading The Wall Street Journal and The New York Times, different points of view. I think consume as much information as you can. So then when someone goes, how did you pull those two things together? You're so clever. Well, not really, actually. You know, actually, I just kind of, yeah, I read it, you know. So I think consume as much information as you can. I think some great advice in there, Tom. And, and again, you know, I think to your point that get comfortable and getting others so comfortable with failure, because so often, you know, it's the social pressures around us that keep us sort of doing something, you know, be it our friends, be it our family. I think the information point's really powerful. I mean, it's frankly why I do this show. You know, I get to speak for for two hours at a time with people like yourself who've who've done some, you know, incredible things, been on journeys, different journeys to your point. Everyone's got a different perspective, but you you learn through so much. And I think there's there's an interesting and I'll you know I shouldn't do this but I, I sort of to add my own perspective to that I think there's a probably a side point and you tell me if you agree or disagree but is actually go all in on what you're doing because I think the one thing that I've personally seen and again you know I, who am I to say but entrepreneurship has become cool and what that's meant is actually I do see a lot of people who use entrepreneurship as an extrinsic motivator you know the the sort of it, we're not actually good doing it we're showing we're doing it because that's what looked cool to our friends and family. And, and ironically, it's that's the opposite of what you're talking about. It's go all in, work the long days, don't do the cool stuff, because that'll give you what you want in that area. But that would be my my little addition. I don't know if you agree, disagree, or have anything to add to that. 
Yeah, I, I definitely agree. It's about all in, right? It's it, it's fully commits. You know, it's it's like the margins for error are so small. You know that. You know, it's like I always wonder when people play tennis. Like you watch Wimbledon. Hold on, you're match point down, and you're still going for the line. What? I would just be tapping it back over the net so I don't mess up the point. You know that it is true that the other side of failure is that winners fully commit, right? They fully commit. And yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, completely. And and you, you're right, you know, that sort of, I, I always think sports is a great analogy because sports, it's so stark and obvious. It's not always as as obvious in sort of the corporate world or, you know, in, in other walks of life. But like you say, that's fully committing, going for it and seeing what comes from it. And actually, I should have said, you know, your point as well. And I think for anyone listening, it's very easy to look at the green grass on the other side and see why someone's better at something. But very often we forget the thing that's great about us under, our, you know, that's under our notes. You know, I, I guess for me, it was, I didn't realize marketing was a thing that anyone cared about when I was in consulting, because it was kind of just what I did, you know, I, was, I, I like making things look nice, sound nice. And, and, you know, that was sort of belittling marketing a bit there. That's not intentional. But you know, that that was the thing I was good at. It was only when I took a step back, I realized there's a thing. And I think for anyone listening, you know, that's really key is actually, if you're great at project management, that can be a very good life. You don't have to be looking at the the latest thing, you know, the rocket ships or whatever it is to be successful. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's so weird, right? And I totally agree with you. It's so weird that what comes easy to us, we minimize. But actually, others are going, how do they do it? I can't do it. How do they do it? But we think, oh, it's nothing. It's nothing, you know. <laughs> no, I, I do. And i keen to, I guess... Move us on slightly, but on that theme of going all in and, and hard work, because thinking now about the business you've you've built as Red Compass, something that you know you've mentioned to me before and and struck me was you mentioned you know Red Compass is a really it's a great place, but a really hard place to work. And again, given the context of everything else we've we've talked about, I'd love to just unpack for my listeners almost what that means to you and how you support new starters, you know, in the business or for anyone who's new to consulting what support you give them or they should be seeking to help them sort of ride that wave out? So I think it's a great place to work because I really want it to be a great place to work. And even if that's an aspirational statement, I want it to be a place that, you know, 31-year-old Tom could say, I, 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 can, I, I like this. It, it may not be the thing I thought I was going to do, but I, I, wow, I'm with smart people. And, you know, I'm with people that really care about what they're doing. And every single day I'm, I'm challenged. So it's like I want to create that environment that I didn't have, right? So, and I think that we put a lot of, lot of effort in, in into that. But the reason I say it's hard is because, let's be honest, let's be absolutely brutally honest. There is only one reason you're going to hire a hundred person consultancy in London because they have to be better than everyone else. We have to be world-class to get hired. If you just want bodies, you will go offshore. You will find cheap bodies you know, in the past, you had them in India, you had them in Eastern Europe, and now because of COVID, anywhere in the world, right? So you're never going to hire us in London on cost. We can't compete, right? And if, if you're going for brand, because, you know, no one got fired for buying IBM or hiring EY or PwC or Accenture, then you're not going to hire us. There's only one reason. You've got to be world class. So it's hard. It's hard to be world class at anything. You've got to continually be performing and delivering and learning and improving. And it's never good enough. You know, we have this little catchphrase, you know, the relentless pursuit of excellence, which actually most days feels like never good enough, right? And if you are not relentlessly pursuing excellence, you will sink in Red Compass. So it is hard. It is tiring. And I guess the point you talked about when we spoke first sort of a, a long time ago about 
that actually that's a almost a, a wave that some ride and succeed through and some some don't. And you know, I think that's and, sorry, go on. Yeah, yeah, sorry. That was the question, wasn't even answer the question, just started talking. So to answer your question, which you've had to ask twice, apologies. The weird thing is that if, if you if you were just kind of coming out of university and starting, and we have very small university intakes each year, actually you're going to find it easier because it's all you've known, right? And you, you just look around you and you copy what you see and things come at you and probably even through quite a long process to get hired because we, we, if we hire three, we expect three to stay. You know, we don't hire a hundred and know that 20 will go. So, so we've worked really hard to find you. The people that really struggle with that, that wave is people who've come out of like, say the big four or big consultancies because they really, really think I've swum in deep waters, Tom. You know, this is a little river by compass. I've swum in the Mississippi, right? I survived in the Mississippi, so your kind of little river, I'm not really too worried about. And even though you, they pay lip service to it, it's more like, I kind of describe it as, it's like a, a river that's on a steep mountainside. It's not that deep, you're right, and you haven't really got to swim to get across it, but it takes your feet away before you know it, you're tumbling down the mountainside. So I think that we haven't always done a great job with that. So if, if you joined Nick, you know, traditionally, you know, for quite a few years, you would join. And at first you loved it because suddenly you had a seat at the table. You had a voice about strategic direction. The people at the top, you were working with people at the bottom to bring them up. You were loving it. And by three months, you had lost all your confidence. As we said, that's great, Nick, but that's great, Nick, but that's great, Nick, but. And suddenly you were then either going to become angry because you got a choice. Either well, screw this little company. I'm from EY. You know, what do they know? Why do they think that this isn't good enough, right? Or you're going to think, yeah, they're right. But I therefore must be rubbish. And we really, really struggle to be like, well, how, oh my goodness, either they've lost their confidence and we think they're great, or they've decided that we're terrible and they're great. How do we turn that around? So I can't fully answer you because we're still on that journey. Of course, some people just get it. But if I'm just really honest, people who have high self-awareness tend to succeed in Red Compass because they have the ability to go, okay, I'm not who I thought I was. I think I was standing under the shine of another brand versus actually myself being that person. But these people seem to care about me as a person. How can I become who I want to be? And that's kind of more by luck than design that we find those people. But those tend to be the people that can kind of make it in, in the river. We're still trying to figure out how the heck. I can tell you everything I've told you, Nick. I guarantee you, you'll join. You think you believe. And in three months, you either hate me or you'll think you're terrible. And neither is true. I think you're sort of being overly generous by saying you, you've still not figured it out. Going on 20 years, 100 people, you've, you've probably figured out more than you, you may be giving yourself credit for. And maybe I'll ask what I was going to in a different way, which is, what do you look for at interview? You know, you've, you now have a good enough picture of what that self-awareness looks like and what a successful Red Compass candidate looks like. What are those things that you look for at interview that says, yeah, this person, they're going to figure it out. And what is it that you look at? You're like, actually, if I had to bet on them, they're going to be a no in three months. So, of course, I probably end up opening myself to loads of HR lawsuits here about, you know, what you're allowed to look for in people and not. But, okay, so I'm looking for a few things. I'm I'm not really looking for your technical credentials, even though, of course, you've probably 
to get to the recruitment, the recruiters and HR, you've got them. I'm not too worried about that. So we're looking for three things that we'd rather, you know, to make it sound. Oh, you're, you're a marketing guy. You might appreciate it. Three C's. Character, chemistry, and competence. So, so character is what kind of person are you? Are you, you know, are you kind of a good person? Are you, you know, do you care about people, right? And are you an honest person, right? Is anything slip in your interview to say that you you're not? And when we, I mean, brutally honest, like painfully honest person, right? Because if you're not a painfully honest person, if you can twist the truth a tiny bit to yourself, you can twist it to the client, and you, you'll never be able to learn. So, character, we, we we really start with that. Chemistry, do we get along? I mean, do, do, do we, because we're going to spend a lot of time together. In fact, I'm going to spend more time with you than my wife probably during the week. And um, I'm going to spend more time with you than my little kids if they've gone to bed. So do we get along? Do we do, do we, is it, I, do I like being in a meeting with you, right? And then competence. But when we say competence, what we don't mean is all the accreditations you've got. It's how smart you are. Because if you're a really good person who cares about people that we get along and you're really smart, we can probably figure this out. So I think it's really those. And I think the last thing which might get me in trouble with HR is this idea. So we have 100 people and 20 nationalities. And we love that. I love it when I walk in a room and hear three people talking Italian to each other. I love that. But also, right, because I'm living in the UK and I've lived in the US and, and I've moved. And there's something about, and this is not against... If you're English living in England, you can still work for us. You know, we've got mostly English people. We still love you. But there's something about people that can get up, go to a different culture, learn their language, navigate their system. How do you rent a house? How do you buy a house? How do you find a doctor, right? Who can, you know, they're kind of, that shows some kind of ambition or self-starting or, or overcoming or resilience. And I think overcoming and resilience are the two traits you got to have to succeed in consulting, right? Overcoming and resilience. And immigrants have overcome and are resilient. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. And I, I love the, the phrase. And um, I mean, we don't have an HR department to worry about. And I'll let you decide yours. And I think you have. And I, I, I think that point around, actually, it's those, as an English man in England, I kind of, I, I will feign offense, but I know exactly what you mean, Tom. And I, I think just having that ability or having gone somewhere, done something different, push yourself out of your comfort zone. I know we've talked about that immigrant mindset before, and I, I'd love, I don't know if you're happy to share the example you shared with me last time around, sort of, you know, you have some brilliant people in your team who embody that. And I think instead of asking you what that mindset looks like, I love, I don't know if you're happy to share any of those examples of actually how that's lived in the team? Because I think those are the things that, like you say, for anyone listening who's like, how do I embody that? It's always easier to, to hear from a real life person. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So three quick examples. And, you know, one is Greta as her real name. And to credit should be given to her because it's about her and not us. We found Greta. Ready? She was cleaning at WeWork in the evenings. Our offices are in WeWork. And most people are gone and we're sitting there working. And there's this, there's this woman who comes around and she's working fast and she's smiling. She's not hating her job because she's a cleaner or it's beneath her. No, no. She's come to this country and she's working fast and she's smiling. And you can tell she's the leader because everyone's looking at her, right? And so she's a leader and she's smiling at whatever task she's doing. She wants to do it really, really well, right? And she's coming to a place and we just got to know her. We got to know her and we're like, she's Red Compass. She is Red Compass, guys. Greta is Red Compass. People are going, well, maybe. We're like, she is Red Compass. And she's joined us and she is awesome and she is Red Compass, right? And then this, is another, this isn't one of our consultants, but this is another example. 
Nico, right? So Nico was managing a coffee shop in London, right? But, and he's Italian. And we had this problem. So this is an internal function that still matters. Corporate IT. Corporate IT is hard, right? It's hard to find good people. People that can actually help you, Nick, help you, consultant, understand that you can't do your job so the company can't meet its mission if you don't have the tools, right? It's hard to find people like that, right? Really, really technical people, really great. People who kind of, I don't know, want to not help anybody but seem to work in corporate IT anyway. But someone who wants to contribute to the company's mission, to corporate IT's heart. So so we couldn't find this person. So we, we, we literally thought, what's a high-pressure job? Retail, Okay. What is think on your feet and respond to customers, right? Hospitality retail. What has a playbook though? Because we want some structure. And we, we, we literally thought, hold on, if you are managing like a Pret or in this case, it was Coco de Mama, but it could have been Costa. And you're probably managing a team of kind of people that barely come and go and it's all kind of chaotic. And if you can manage that team and you can deliver customer service and deliver the corporate playbook, hold on, we can teach you IT. And we literally said, does anyone know anyone who is managing a coffee shop in the city? We want them to come fill corporate IT. And Nico is perfect. I love both of those stories. And I think, you know, really, really powerful examples, and particularly for anyone listening around, actually, you you don't simply have to look for a square peg for a square box. And to your point, some of those roles, actually, that yes, you can teach someone the skills, it's largely about the aptitude. And, you know, I think there's, there's an implicit point in that as well, Tom, of, supporting them through it because you know very often you hear of people failing or actually if you look hard it's the company not the person you know if you hadn't given nico the training and the tools he's he's, he can make coffee but he can't manage servers but actually your your point around finding those skill sets that mindset because that's that's much harder to teach i'd love though you tell it as a story now that's worked and obviously it's it's a good thing and it's worked out for you but did you have any challenges getting the rest of the the team, the leadership team on, on board to that approach? Because it's quite, I guess, unorthodox to say, we're not going to hire an IT manager from you know one of the big banks behind you in your sort of office. We're going to hire someone who runs a coffee shop and teach them service. Did you, did you have any pushback? And if so, what were those challenges you had to overcome? So, right, great Japanese word. This is your, this is your word of the day, right? This is your vocabulary expansion of the day. Nemawashi. Nemawashi is a... Japanese idea for how you build consensus. And because, because because you can't go in the meeting room and say, what does everyone think? Because, oh my goodness, that's a terrifying moment. No one's going to tell you what they think in a consensus culture because what if they stand out? What if they're, what if they upset the group? So Nemawashi is that you have to anticipate every question that could be asked. You then have to go around to each stakeholder ahead of time and present the idea, listen to the questions overcome them. And at the end of the day, building consensus is so much more powerful than saying, I'm a senior partner, we're going to do it. And I think that it wasn't hard because I just explained my logic that I just explained to you, right? But I gave it to you one-on-one. So you had a chance to go, okay, Tom, but okay, here are my worries, right? What if what if this happens and that happens? Oh, good point, Nick. Okay. Uh, how about we compromise on this? What if we agree that there's this trial period and this is what success looks like? Would you be happy then? So I think, I think it was that whether we were wired that way, whether we got it from the Japanese bank or whether we succeeded in Japanese banks because we're wired this way, I don't know. But I think 
always build consensus. You know, sometimes you got to play the senior partner card, but you know, you're burning a lot of currency when you play that card. Make others feel invested in Nico's career. Make others want it to go well for Nico. Make people feel proud of their company if Nico succeeds. And I think Nemawashi is the answer. I'm a big fan of Japan. We spent uh, a month there a couple of years ago with the Rugby World Cup. And it's, uh, yeah, it's a country I'd love to go back to. I think they, there's a lot in Japanese culture we could learn from and, and you know, some great advice in there, both for if someone wants to hire their own Nico or just, you know, how to build consensus, how to work well with others. And uh, yeah, I will be I'll be using Nemawashi at some point over the coming week. Obviously, we're here, here on a Friday. So next week, I'll, I will make sure I start to use it. And I, something else in, in maybe it was Nemawashi that, that helps this, but... Again, something that I think, to your point of having 20 nationalities across the office, you know, that, that's amazing. And in, in sort of today's world where everyone's looking to, to promote diversity and inclusion, it's clear you've, you've been successful at that and, and have a diverse team. But an interesting question of actually for you as the leader of the business, because, again, to oversimplify, if consultancies are made up of people who are all like the leader – to an extent, it becomes quite easy to manage because, you know, they've all got that shared experience, those shared cultural values, references, etc. For yourself and your team, 20 different nationalities means 20 different cultural backgrounds, 20 different cultural understandings, 20 different sort of, you know, values that have been instilled from people as a child. Actually, how do you approach leading such a diverse team? And and maybe it's hard because I don't know sort of what the teams you led were like before, but how is that different from leading more of a homogenous team? And for anyone who's trying to move towards more of that, yeah, how can they do it? How can they lead a team so so diverse, so successfully? So don't do it because you think it's politically correct, for sure, because it is really hard. But, you know, I mean, it's really obvious, right? If you've got 11 goalkeepers and you guys want to figure out how to go about winning a match – you're going to come up with a very different strategy than if you've got a couple of strikers, some midfielders, some defenders, and a goalkeeper. That clearly, different points of view is going to be more successful. You know, or, or stop using sports analogies. If you're in an orchestra, if you're all violinists. You, your view of how you're going to deliver a symphony is very different than if you've got every part. So I think you've got to just accept from the beginning, hold on, we are absolutely better with different perspectives. So the goal here is to deliver the mission. How can I deliver the mission? Well, I can't do it if we're all goalkeepers or violinists. So I know we've got to have diversity because if we don't have those different views, we can't deliver our mission. That has to be your starting point. You've got to believe in that because when it's difficult, and it will be difficult, right? And because... You know, you, 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 you take a word, a value statement, and you translate it into a different language, and it, it means a different thing, right? So it's going to be hard and comical and frustrating, and you're going to go in circles. So if you don't really, truly believe, I need 11 different skills to win this football match, I need, you know, all these different instruments to play this this piece, you, you, you can't win. You can't do it. I think having having decided that you're going to do it, I think that... You've got to say, well, what does this deliver for me that, that, that is so good? Well, if, if I can make this clear to a British person, to an American, to a Polish person, to an Indian person, to a Japanese person, actually, we're probably being pretty clear. And if we're being that clear, probably clients can understand what we're trying to say. And if we can make that clear to Japanese, Indian, Polish, British, American, maybe we could sell globally. You know, hold on. You know, maybe our client base just grew from one square mile, you know, to, to the whole planet. And so 
maybe this is worth all the pain of trying to communicate and people talking across each other and, and stuff. So, so I think that that would be the second thing is really grasping the benefit of it. And therefore you think, well, it's the only thing we, it's our only choice. We, we have to do this because if we don't do this, we can't succeed. That makes it a lot easier. It, it, so I think it's a mindset. It's a belief of why you're doing it. I think some great points. And, and actually, I, I, again, these things always seem obvious when, when someone like yourself says them. But actually, that that ability to talk clearly across those different nationalities means, A, you are being clear so a client can understand. But I think your point there around actually, if you're looking to expand globally, you've got to be able to do that as well. And, you know, I've, I'm sure we've both seen a lot of consulting firms that have had phenomenal success in their their geography and actually haven't made that leap. And I suspect a large part to your point is, they haven't quite bridged that cultural gap. Whereas if you're you're doing it internally already, you know, that's the you're halfway down that road. And do you as a leader, I mean, is it very much that sort of Nemawashi different approach for each person? Have you found actually you've created a consistent sort of cross-cultural approach in terms of your persona, your messaging, how you talk to your team? How do you approach that? We're a small company, so that's easier in a way, right? Because if you work in Red Compass, you know me and I know you. So it's easier. I mean, I, I don't want to pretend that, you know, someone working in EY, you know, has the ability to play it the way we play it. So I, I, I want to acknowledge that. But I think that to lead and to lead cross-culturally, you've got to be available as a human being to the people that you're asking to follow. And so I think that, so we, we really want to have a, a language of transparency in our in our company and so in that sense i think that we're very open and that, that that's that, that's both in terms of expecting more of you nick that's also in terms of saying this is what's going on with me and also in terms of saying you've done really great so i think that that is the only way we can succeed as a small company is is to where culture rub, rub up against each other is to say Hey, you know, I'm going to laugh at myself as an American, right? We elected Donald Trump, right? We did that, right? And then suddenly you can laugh at me as well. And we're not against each other anymore. And you can see that I'm a human being who has a sense of, you know, irony. So maybe I could talk to you as a British person. So when I say football, you might believe, you know, that I actually know what I'm talking about. So I think it's that, you know, I'm going to show you who I am. If it's not good enough for you, that's okay. Because I, then I'm not good enough for you. But if it is, then probably you're going to show me who you are, Nick. And maybe now we can work together. And if we can work together, we might actually succeed in whatever your project is or whatever you're trying to you're trying to do. So I think it's that. I think that I know it's different in a, in a bigger world than we inhabit. But we have luxuries that they don't have, which is probably why I'm here, not there. But it's 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 being transparent and available and honest and full of grace to each other. When I, when I fail you as a leader, Nick, I rely on your grace to give me a second chance. You know, it's, it's I think it's that. I love that, Tom. And I think, you know, to your point, so that honesty and, and you didn't use the word, but there's almost a vulnerability in there as a, as a leader. And, you know, as much as you talk about, you're looking towards the big four and the differences, a lot of the listeners to this show, I mean, we, we have them across the, the consulting spectrum, if you like, but there'll be a lot of firms smaller than yourselves looking to get to that hundred, you know, hundred plus and actually, how you do that, obviously, you know, is, is through some of those things you, you've done there. And 
I guess probably the the last topic to touch on for today, and and only because of of time. I always say I get sad in these interviews because you have a great conversation that you could do for the rest of the evening, and and you know I'm sure there's more, but you have a the Economist and a Bath to wait for you later, and I don't want to to stop you getting to that as when you do. And I guess to the point, you know, we've just talked around diversity and and sort of that side of things. And actually, another thing that touched me in the Red Compass story, and I'd, I'd love to just get your perspective on on the why and, and particularly for others thinking what they could do is, you know, we talked before around actually payments is an industry that can be used for bad or, you know, good or bad. And I think to your point around finding your passion, something that I know some people struggle with is, well, actually, I work in an industry that, you know, you could say is bad for the world. You know, if you take oil, just or pharmaceuticals or cigarettes is the obvious one. But, you know, for some of those industries where it's not immediately obvious it's completely bad. There is a lot of grey and, you know, banking particularly got a terrible reputation. You mentioned the financial crisis and Lehman Brothers. And actually, I'd love to get your perspective on that from a payment sort of side of things. And actually, what you and Red Compass do differently and why? Why is it that you approach this in a slightly different way? And, and what is it you do to almost give back to the industry and, and sort of net out some of the bad that you may perceive as a result of it? Yeah, I think it's a fair point. The, a payment can be used for good or bad. That's totally right. I agree. It, it's a neutral thing, right? It's just totally neutral. And it's like the internet. The internet is neutral. It, it, it provides tremendous information. It, it, it enables doctors to, to diagnose around the world. It, 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 it delivers very efficiency child pornography. And the payment's exactly the same thing. It enables you to, you know, to, to, to purchase or to, to fund that doctor serving around the world and, and it enables you to, you know, to silently consume and purchase child pornography and the payment is, 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 is right there. And I think for us, we felt because we started in payments more than financial crime, we moved to financial crime over time that we had a responsibility and that you, you wanted your kids to be proud of, you know, what do you do, dad? You know, and you, you wanted your kids to be proud of you and, and you wanted to, when you meet your maker to, you know, to, to be, yeah, you know, I I left the place better than, than I found it, I think. And so I think for us, we we couldn't just live with making money out of payments, even if we felt we were working with banks that, that, that cared. Because like you said, every bank's got a gray area. Every client of ours got a gray area. We're going, oh my goodness, you know. Oh my goodness, that bank funds how much oil? You know, so so I think it's, it's, it's a really valid question. So we just started. This idea that the two types of payments, good and bad, and the good we make money off and the bad we're going to help stop. Now, over time, we've developed a business, but you know, around financial crime. But it didn't start that. It started as we're going to make sure that we level out. You know, every, any any door that we open, the bank this woman can make that payment. We, we want to close the door. And someone's going to actually trick her into, you know, coming to Europe and she ends up as a, a sexually trafficked, you know, individual. So we wanted to, every door we opened, we wanted to close a door. And we felt we had to do that to justify the money in our bank account. I love that statement. And I think, you know, so powerful. And to your point, that sort of, you take advantage, make money from the good, you close the bad and you, you net that out. And I guess, I guess this sort of, that sounds again, really, really simple. Now you've, you've done it, but almost... You know, when you're starting the business or at any point in a business, you know, your consultants work long hours, we work hard. How did sort of that idea get to critical mass? And, and you know, what were the steps you took to, to start that sort of the door closing side of the business? Because surely it's, it, there must have been the constant tension of we need to pay salaries, need to make money. Was it something that, you know, you and, and your colleagues just felt was right? Was it something that built over time? And I'm really, I guess, asking this for anyone listening, thinking, I love that philosophy. How do I embrace that and build that in my firm? 
Well, I think one, if you, if, if you should live simply in your twenties as a company, you should live simply as well so that you, you know, you, you do have cash that you have choices to do things with. I think that's one thing the NBA taught me, hoard cash, hoard cash, you know, then you don't have crisis of liquidity when you hoard cash. Um, and COVID, I think COVID has taught us that. So I think that we, we live simply as a, as a, as a company. So we had the option. I think. The second thing was is that we we had a lot of consultants that, you know, thought, well, I've got to do this job and it, 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 it's a project and it's it, it's a payments project, but I want to do good as well. You know, we're we going to give people time off and go do stuff. You know, well, how, how are we going to do this? And we just, as a company, we just got together. And at that point, I guess we're about 60 or 70. And we said, look, we've got this idea. And we, we think that we can, you know, we can, there's a lot of research out there into, you know, the different red flags that may indicate, you know, modern slavery, human trafficking. We, we think we can take our knowledge of payments and our knowledge of data analytics and combine those and create some kind of product with a small p compendium or database that we could give to banks for free and it's going to cost us money but every pound that you earn for very compass when you're off consulting and working hard and you haven't been back to the mothership for two weeks and you're feeling alone you know that some of that money is going into this and that you can tell your kids that some of the work that you do is you know is directly impacting you know kind of modern slavery human trafficking financial services and that is what drove it because people were like yeah do it do it you know you know we don't need a twice as good Christmas party. This is a great Christmas party. Do it, do it. And the problem is that once you start, you think it's going to cost you 30000 before you know it, it's costing you 300000 And, oh my goodness, that's that fully commit thing. The downside of fully commit is, oh my goodness, we've said we would do it. And now we've got to do it. And if we don't do it, we're liars. But it's going to cost all this money, but we said we would do it, so we got to do it. So it's the two feet, right? Yeah, well, and it talks, I mean, comes back to what we talked about right at the start of, of this conversation, doesn't it, Tom, around actually having a passion and doing it for more than the money. And, you know, like you said, for your team. And again, I guess for anyone listening who is thinking more from a sort of, how do I build my business? How do we grow for, for you know, financial success? Actually, that must be a great cultural sort of driver, keeping people, you know, committed to the, the objectives of the firm and really feeling part of it. If actually, like you say, they can say to their families, not only are we making money from banks, but actually we're stopping human trafficking. And, and you know, that's the other side of what we do. And I guess then, you know, with hindsight, having to your point done it, spent a lot more money than maybe you expected. You know, would you still tell others to just follow the same? And to your point, it may cost a little bit more financially, but actually the benefits are still worth that. Or are there any other, if you were to do it all again, would you change anything? Uh, no, I wouldn't. And and I think that, you know, this is going to sound really cynical. And, and what it mustn't sound like is that we make money off modern slavery. But I think that it goes back to our point we talked about earlier, which is that when you do things because they need to be done, you know, when you're willing to take 12,000 one year because you live simply, you, you, when you create that space, when you give up, we're going to be a success. That actually, that probably who we are is good enough. Good things tend to happen. So, so suddenly, I, I, I say to you, bank, look, you know, this is free. You can have these flags. All this work, you know, this is going to at the very least is a hundred thousand pounds of business analysis that we've pulled into to give you for free. At the very most, we can integrate this into your system, right? And you can automate. Oh, what else can you do? And we didn't do it for that, but. It has absolutely opened doors that we didn't 
imagine would be open to us, right? You know, but if we'd started with that in mind, it wouldn't have worked, right? It wouldn't have worked. And that's the weirdest thing. I know I'm going to go do the CSR thing because actually it's going to make us more money. It somehow doesn't work. The universe doesn't allow that to happen, you know, but, you know, and then the second thing is that, you know, so say it costs us 300,000 pounds this year. Well, you know what? I think it's probably increased our retention, because people feel bought into this, right? People, you know, who aren't even on the specific project. We, we, we've won a couple of awards for and you know, kind of financial industry awards. And they're elated when we've won it because they've paid for that, right? So there probably is, there probably is a calculation someone can do in some business school to prove that you're, you, you actually, you know, you know, from retention or attracting talent, that it probably pays for itself, but somehow, if you do it for the money, the universe will not allow it. No, I, I'm smiling because I, I completely agree. And, and while I, I would never compare this podcast to a, you know, a database that stops human trafficking, having started it for the same reasons, just something to give back, something a bit different, exactly like you say, you know, the business that I now run, you know, Create Engage, we, this wouldn't be here without starting a podcast to give back, you know, interview a few people, share it with the world. And I think, you're, you know, you're spot on is actually... A lot of these things you probably can post-rationalize in a spreadsheet, but you, you can very rarely do it the other way around. You know, you could probably show me a spreadsheet that shows, you know, net net you have made X more than you've invested. But, you know, as clever analytical consultants, you, we could probably never prove that, you know, before the event. But I think it's a really powerful point, Tom. And, and like you say, actually, you know, the theme across with the doors, you know, from a door to a door to a door, follow your heart, follow what feels right and I guess, you know, implicit in all of that is be attuned to those opportunities around it because, you know, there's plenty of people who follow their heart but don't keep their sort of proverbial radar attuned. But actually, if you do, you know, the the benefits come to everyone as a result of it. And then we are sadly, Tom, pretty much out of time. And it leaves me with two last questions and two that you you sort of teed me up for earlier and politely didn't answer. So thank you very much. And I'll start with the the first of, of these two, because you mentioned you're an avid reader of, of business books, of, of newspapers, and I just like to absorb knowledge and really keen to ask, you know, thinking of you take the time horizon, the last year, 10 years, 20 years, is there a book or books that stand out to you? You know, a book that you've given to the whole team at Red Compass, or you find yourself going back to time and time again? So, so you did, to be, to be fair, you did warn me about this one. And so I thought a lot about it. So forgive me if my answer sounds pre-canned, okay? <laughs> because it was really, I thought a lot about it. And I'm going to pick two books that I've never given to anyone in the company, even though we've given out loads of books in the company. But, and I wanted to do these two books because these two books, from a business point of view did change my trajectory and did change my life as it were the truths in these two books i think are the complementary are what set us on our path this way so you know if someone listening wants an inflection point reading these two books were and it was in the middle of my mba and i'm in bed and i'm reading them out loud to my wife that's how interesting i am right but it was that's how engaged i was right with these two books book number one it's called competing for the future gary hamill and C.K. Prahalad, I think, two kind of business school professor types. So a real, you know, business school professor. I think they're University of Michigan, you know, business school 
writing a business school type of book, right? Competing for the future. And a guy who in his day was, you know, kind of ahead of his time, Charles Handy wrote a book called The Empty Raincoat. And these are two books that, you know, you're looking at me, Nick, because you're young, you know, and you think, what? But they're still utterly relevant. And here's why. Ready? And this is why if you're going to read two books to, to, to try and become very compass, it's these two books. One is, Charles Hine talks about this idea of the sigmoid curve, right? A sigmoid curve is to take a normal bell curve, just compress it a bit, right? It's just an up and down. It's up and down. That's all it is. And he, he makes the point in our careers, in, in, in the service we're providing, in, in, in a certain client, whatever it is, you go up and then you reach the top of the peak and then it kind of comes down. It could be revenue. It could be your, your success. It could be, every, you know, and you go up and you come down. And the successful people, when they get to the top of the curve, they jump on a new curve and they go up again. And there's three problems with that. One, you go down before you go up, right? So you're at the top of the curve and you're going to drop down a bit before you go up again. No one wants to go down. No one wants that moment of stepping off. But things have never been so good, you say, at the top of the curve. Why would I change now? Because you're about to go over the top of the curve and it gets worse. And once you're going downhill, it's hard to pull out of a death spiral, right? So the moment to change are when things have never been so good and it's counterintuitive right? And you're thinking about the future. If everything is perfect now, it almost means by definition, it's totally going to fail in 18 months. You've got to change curves right when you think it's never been so good. Second point, competing for the future is kind of a more systematic business view of the same thing. To succeed, you've got to live 18 months to three years in the future. If you live in today, whatever you're building, you're building for today and you'll finish building it once it's obsolete right? You, you've got to be Noah building this ark without any rain, right? Because, you know, the only way you're going to survive is if you've got an ark when it rains. But how do you know to build an ark when it's blue skies? And their whole point is very well put, strategic alignment, strategic intent. So a very technical book about how to build a company that's always thinking about the future. And Charles Handy was, and how do you as a human being go against every grain of instinct to say, don't change now. It's never been so good. That's the moment you must change. So that's maybe what drives you through the doors. I love both recommendations because I've never heard of either, Tom. And I, I'm a big fan of books that have stood the test of time. I think nowadays there's, I read a lot of books that I get bored of very quickly because they're, they're rehashes of, of ideas that have been told better by someone else. And so I love those. And actually, I'm just about to go on holiday. So I will, uh, I will get both of those on my Kindle. Hopefully, I can sit on a beach in Cornwall, albeit... Looking at the weather, I might be sitting in uh, in my holiday home, or that makes me sound very fancy. It's just an Airbnb, my Airbnb in Cornwall, and and reading those. But um, no, I love I love both in the descriptions, and I I'm equally looking forward to the next question because I know I primed you on this one as well, which is one again I ask all my guests, and it's quite simply three people in front of you. You got one who's that analyst. You, know, you mentioned graduates, the sort of just joining Red Compass at that first jobber level. You got someone who's manager level in a consulting firm so you know whatever age that is they've done enough to have options but they're still not the sort of senior end and then you've got the third person who is approaching partner so they're you know they're trying to decide do i make partner in this firm do i change and, and jump somewhere else is consulting partnership for me and the question is quite simply what one piece of advice would you give to each okay so reverse order the person approaching partner okay like we said before you can't do it for the money making partner is the outcome of the things you already do. It's not a goal to reach. You know, that you act in a certain way, 
And the outcome of that is partner. You care about other people. You build businesses. You're such an expert. You know, you're naturally a leader. Who you are, how you act, it's, it's not something to strive for. Be who you are. And the result will become you make partner, right? Don't strive for partner. Strive to be better as you. That's that. That's that's the key to the door of partner. Okay, that's the differentiator. Person in the middle of your career, probably this is the hardest time in your life. Don't give up, right? That you probably got the the biggest squeeze in your finances. You've bought a house, or you know, and you're probably maybe maybe starting to get kids, or maybe you chose not to get kids, and your other friends have, and they've kind of left you alone, you know. And there's tremendous work pressure because you've now got responsibility. This is the biggest squeeze. Hang in. Hang in, right? It gets better. You know, that we know statistically you will be in the most unhappy time in your life is perhaps about 32 to 42 because of all these pressures. Hang in, keep going, grind it out. There is something on the other side that your expertise will deliver some of the things you really want. And the person starting at the beginning, I would say, try everything. You know, you are so much younger than you think you are. Shut up, Tom. No, no, I'm not patronizing you. I'm saying your opportunities are ahead of you. Don't worry if you go down this road for two years this the wrong road and you got to reverse and go down another road you've got time you've got time and everything you learn on the wrong roads you will be able to pull together later in your career try things do things but live simply you know you're the first person actually to do it the other way around i really like that i might um, i might encourage more of that tom and i think that is a fantastic place for us to finish today so thank you very much i've really enjoyed this i think you know we've covered a lot of topics i've covered with no other guests and it's been fantastic to get your perspective and i guess the very last thing to ask then tom is for anyone who's listening to this you know they want to find out more about you about red compass you know maybe they want to join maybe they want to find out more about you know how your sort of your products are are helping end modern slavery and human trafficking where would you point them to where can they get in touch so the the website of course redcompass.com but they can contact me i will reply to every email i may not reply instantly i will reply i promise I may reply if you're asking me for a job to our wonderful recruitment team who know all about who we are and what we're looking for, but I will reply to every email. I think it's probably the fairest way to anyone who's survived an hour and a half of this to give them my email. Amazing. Well, I think that is a great reward. And I think, I hope you'll be pleasantly surprised by the amount of people who do make it through. So Tom, thank you very much for this. And and all that's left to say is all the best for the rest of your week. Yeah. And thank you, Nick. I really enjoyed it. I was terrified of what it was going to be like and it flew by and to credit to your hosting thank you thanks a lot tom i hope you enjoyed today's episode of climbing consulting if you have any guest recommendations comments ideas thoughts on how i can make this show better for you just drop me an email it's nick at createengage.co.uk and i really look forward to hearing from you